so there was also options to use a lot of, for example, um, of material from what was happening in Germany from 2015-2017, the big uh, migration that came into Germany. But as it was very limited, limitedly touching the, the everyday life of the children, I thought, oh, I don't want to bring something in which they, out of themselves, are not uh, confronted with, because they are very rural, rural. Uh, it's a very rural community, for example. So um, I tried to not bring things from me as a 30-year-old or a 26-year-old when I started into the life of the 14-year-olds mm. because it's so <laughs> it's so dif different and I felt like it's a kind of polluting them. I don't I don't want to be the one who's educating them about what the Holocaust has to do with the um, migration movements that we uh, see in the world today. So I just wanted to stick to their subjective experience. You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Welcome back. This is Rodolfo Rivas and this is my podcast. My guest is Elena Horn, the film director of The Lesson and Lands of Lost Content, amongst other films. For the second time, the Rodolfo Rivas project visited the Zurich Film Festival, and I was lucky enough to meet a couple of filmmakers. In this episode, I talked to Elena Horn the day after the premiere of her film The Lesson, which screened to a big audience that included lots of children. After the screening, the kids asked plenty of questions and vividly engaged with this thought-provoking material. I had big shoes to fill when talking to Elena, since I wanted to have an insightful conversation with her as she did the previous day at her screening. But luckily for me, Elena made our conversation fun, even when we delved into some of the themes touched in her powerful film. In our conversation, Elena tells us how she got into films after initially hoping to become a gymnast. She talks about the importance of learning all aspects of her of the filmmaking craft and discusses some of the topics she focuses in her filmmaking. About the film, and without going into spoilers, she tells us about the unique distribution model she chose for the film and talks about the importance of educating the youth. The lesson took over five years in the making, and it is an evident labor of love by a committed filmmaker. Time flew by during our conversation. I look forward to watching more films by Elena and I highly recommend you to watch this film because it tells us more about how we need to remember and tell stories about the past to learn the lessons, even if they are painful. The Holocaust happened many years ago, but its consequences remain. This is my conversation with Elena. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you for listening. Please let us know by liking, subscribing and or reviewing if you enjoyed this conversation. You can also spread the word by telling your friends, or even your enemies, about us. The more, the merrier. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms, and you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Hello, Elena. Uh, thank you for accepting my invitation. I saw your film yesterday, and uh, congratulations. It was really powerful. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Um, so I want to talk about the film, but I also want to talk about a bit about your history in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how did you become a filmmaker? So um, I was not one of these early born ah, no. filmmakers, okay. you know, that, that are that, uh, that are children and they want to become filmmakers. I, w I was actually a gymnast and I had a very bad accident where I broke my elbow and um, it was, I mean, I was training six times a week, yeah. a lot. Mm -hmm. So I then so suddenly I had nothing to do anymore I, uh, because I couldn't train, I couldn't do nothing. So then I was searching for something that I can do that I still wanted it to be connected to movement, um, but with a broken elbow. And so I started editing. <laughs> because you can be like a choreographer, right? Uh, with, in the edit suite. So I taught myself editing, and uh, so then I was 16. Uh, and uh, then I just got obsessed with it <laughs> and <laughs> fell deeply in love with, with filmmaking, yeah. I see, so by the time that you were editing, like that's why you were maybe attracted to documentary films? Yes, because it was something that was uh, material that was available to me. I, I started with editing above all sports and gymnastics, you know, there is a lot of beauty in that. Yeah. And I have the impression you still see it in my films now that I come from the world of movement <laughs> into filmmaking. Um, and then I studied media psychology in Cologne and in Paris and later documentary filmmaking in London and um, I, it really is I'm so happy with the life that I can lead with filmmaking because you can you can dive into people's lives into worlds that normally nobody has access to doors just open for you because you have a camera yes. so that just that's why I think it's a wonderful <laughs> profession and uh, you've done like different aspects in filmmaking so you like also have like a wide experience in each of the roles mm -hmm. how, how has that helped you to become a better filmmaker i thought it's extremely important above all as a woman to be also technically very capable I because i've had situations <laughs> where my cameraman is telling me yeah well that's not possible elena like what are you asking from me oh, really? and still? yes of course there is a lot of okay. patronizing um attitudes still around i mean it's still a very male profession and above all in editing as well like sometimes they're just telling me well come here come here little girl i'm gonna tell you i'm gonna teach you how this but some works. of the best editors are women yes absolutely absolutely but I, uh, often you don't get to choose necessarily who you're editing with if you're working in television right yeah. and uh, sometimes i you're unlucky with <laughs> and, and then um, because I don't know I'm small I'm I'm still relatively young so sometimes I have uh, issues like that still so, but having this like technical expertise like allowed you to be like no this is how it should be exactly exactly so um, it also increase the more capable you are uh, technically the more creative you can be as well because you can think of chances and possibilities that if you are only conceptual that uh, you can't access this this sphere yes. um, and you can experiment more you can also do something you know because films when you have to do films it's quite rigid right so you have like you have to finish it in with eight within eight days of editing for example mm. and uh, so there's not so much freedom to try in that moment but if you can if you're capable to do stuff also alone at home trying things before you even start the film then 
then you can be more creative. So uh, I think it's a great, I, I would advocate that to all filmmakers and also to, above all to all female filmmakers, to not be afraid of the technology behind filmmaking. Yes. Like it's all something you can learn. And right now that it's so like uh, available and access to anyone. Yeah, you just need a computer and that's pretty much it. Yes, exactly. And um, not so heavy anymore. <laughs> like once. Yes, yeah, or before you had to go to a university where they had the equipment. Yeah. Now even with your phone, you can do it. Yes. Um, Only sound. That's always the a tricky thing. And, and the sound. And the sound is like uh, me doing this podcast. I realize how important sound is. Yeah. Um, talking about uh, a bit about your influences as a filmmaker. What What are some of the films or directors or work that influenced influenced you early, and if it has changed through your career? Um, I uh, I think a great deal of for me of creativity in filmmaking comes from literature because literature. Wow, yeah yes. because there you can still imagine things so um, I know that in the fiction world I think it's very advisable to watch a lot a lot a lot a lot of films um, but maybe in the documentary world um, it's very important to read and read and read and read. Yeah. <laughs> Um, to uh, try def uh, try how to take the perspective. Can you take my, maybe in your story the perspective of an unborn child? Uh, can you like things that are not so obvious because often reality drives you into a, a certain plus the formats that they are and that you have to fulfill uh, drives you into a certain way of narrating. Yeah. Um, and so I think from. A literature really helps you to still imagine things. I think it's a, also generally an issue in our society at the moment yeah. because everything is already quite ready-made and complete. It has moving image and sound and it's in your pocket. So um, in actually to, to come up with something new is not so easy anymore. Yeah. yeah, it's true. And actually I remember sometime reading something that said that the writer who writes more than they read, they're probably not doing well, and it certainly applies to uh, documentary filmmaking. Um, but what are some of the stories that you have influenced you in literature? Um, so I like to really read um, non-fictional, like narrative non-fiction. Yes. I really love that kind of uh, kind of literature. But I also like reading thrillers, <laughs> like Frank Schätzig, for example. You know, uh, that really makes you the makes you a cinema in your head, even though it's not real. It's like it just gives you ideas. It, it gives you ideas, it gives you options of what you can use from it. Or, um, I mean, I like reading people like Chimamanda Ngozi um, Adichie, for example, because she gives you perspectives in, into society that are uh, non-European and non-Western. Non and it's like the stories that we haven't heard yet. Not just the stories, but also the experiences, um, the family dynamics, not just, you know, there's not just Buddenbrocks. <laughs> you know, I'm German, so um, often we, we go back into, into reading our great classics and then rereading reality through that lens. Yeah. So if you're reading authors, from Nigeria or from Chile or from Mexico, you get yes, you get the different perspectives and a completely um, different uh, lecture of 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 family life, of love, of um, of a religion, belief, like all of this. I think this is very 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 crucial. 
I'm just curious that you said that you are a, you were a gymnast uh, before. Mm -hmm. Have you thought, or maybe you had, and I'm not aware, of doing a film around uh, about gymnastics? Because it has been really recently in the news, like uh, a yeah. lot about the mental pressure and abuse. And this is this a topic that you like, would be interested in exploring? I would be very interested in exploring that, and I also considered it because um, after. I mean, we have multiple narratives at the moment that are unfolding and finally coming to the surface. We have Simone Biles, who is um, who showed to us that <laughs> that that you can have this kind of mental cracks when you lose the control in the air. Yeah. It is something that almost all gymnasts experience, and it was such a reveal that uh, gymnasts of such quality can actually make it a topic. Yeah. So, and it's also showing how risky the sport has become, how dangerous it is. And um, she also showed how she uh, competed with broken bones and so on, and that it's that it's acceptable that we ask that of, of young gymnasts. You know, <laughs> and um, that it's not normal to say, okay, stop, you don't compete until the end, even though the US will not win the uh, all-around title, yeah. maybe. And um, and of course, the abuse of this uh, uh, Dr. Nasser. Yeah. Um, I think it's something that also, of course, happens in in Europe. But above all, this mental pressure. I also experienced how like 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 how coaches demand a lot of you but they don't support you yeah. at at the top level you know i don't speak about the normal club gymnastics sphere no, like i love that level, yeah. it's like a family there are my friends like the uh, i have learned so much of my coaches where uh, my attitude towards working my attitudes to also um like push down pain to a certain extent it helps me with filmmaking getting things done you yeah. know that comes from from being a professional athlete yeah it helps you like throughout your life yeah, yeah. but is this something that you are gonna try to explore in a film that would be like i would love like, to do that because nobody did it yeah. basically on a on a global span uh, yet and above all i mean there are countries that were not so much on the radar of uh, being um like abusive towards children at that age, right? Yeah. There are nations like the Netherlands, like Great Britain, who were, they were not, you know, these countries where that was already public, like China, Russia, yeah. the US. So um, it's very, it's a very interesting topic and um, I want to work on that. Yeah, and I think that you would have like, you would bring a really good perspective because you also were part of that world. Uh, well, now I want to talk about the film which I watched uh, yesterday. With I was really impressed because it was in a, in a theater where it was full of children. Was this like your was this like your audience that you were looking at when you first uh, or, or when the movie was finished? Was this something that you were looking at? I thought it uh, maybe it's gonna be great to be seen by children the same age that I was filming. So. Because, and it's a completely different experience uh, in, the, in the cinema if there's the, the, the children are like 13 or even younger yeah. um, compared to when it's, a, when it's an older audience. It makes a huge difference if we are in a country which, has a, which is post-fascist. If we are in Italy, for example, and in Germany, they, the reception of the film is very different from countries like Switzerland or the US. So um, You've been, you're able to see that? The difference? Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, I mean, <laughs> I found often in the U.S. they are, um, for example, making a. They are thinking, ah, wh where is it for, for us? 
there's slavery, there is um, maybe even our attitude towards sexual education is a bit similar, this idea of not uh, naming things, of being very abstract or not even mentioning it at all because there's this idea of the innocence of children and we have to maintain that. And a 14-year-old child is still very young and she cannot really be exposed to that. So they are thinking uh, very much in that respect. But if you are a country, um, a post-fascist country, then you're looking at, okay, how are we dealing with our fascist past? And um, so the cinematographer of this documentary comes from Italy, so we were always confronting a bit um, towards that. And um, there, is, there is not this kind of uh, <laughs> confrontation with the past in yeah. Italy like, like it is in Germany. Yeah. And uh, I saw that the film, like the part of the distribution strategy has been to license it to schools, like to education programs. Yes. Uh, and your film also talks about school. So I'm curious, like, why, why was this the reason behind the... Uh, if you can talk about the distribution strategy mm -hmm. and why you picked this uh, this avenue. So, um, as the when the film was developing, uh, because it was a very long project, right? We were filming almost five years, so yeah. um, we always had to search for who who can who can we partner with in order to be able to continue yeah. filming. Because I mean, a TV channel is not gonna let you film something so. Uh, uncertain, where you never know what's going to come out. Yeah. But that's often, I mean, when very precious films um, arise, but it's a very complicated thing to fund, right? So, um, and we've, we saw how above all universities, like the University of Cambridge, for example, was extremely interested into this documentary. Oh, okay. So, um, it, 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 uh, it got attracted by the education sector very, very quickly. And uh, that it can actually be used by teachers. Um, I mean, it, this is like the ideal for me, for my, my idea for the documentary in the, in the end. Also due to the archive footage, um, which... Which was amazing, that footage. <laughs> yes, and it was, for me, it was a pressure to find it. It was one of these magical moments um, as a documentary filmmaker, then finding such a treasure. And I'm already sad that maybe, I mean, <laughs> that doesn't happen so often to you in a lifetime, probably. So, um, and uh, to, to show children today how people, how children were learning in the schools from 33 to 39, I mean, they are so close to this experience. And it also informs each other, right? When you are um, filming and talking to children that are to, today 13 years old, and in, you look at them in the archive footage, you see how how they can be influenced, at what level it, uh, they are in terms of um, what they can already understand, what they cannot understand. So um, it also informs you about the children back then, yeah. actually. And I think that one of the great things about this footage is that it's, it doesn't seem to have a perspective like in favor, it's not promoting something. It's just like, a, like an observant of what's happening. And I think that's, it makes it even more powerful the way that you used it in your film. Exactly. So lo most of the archive footage we have of that time comes from news coverage, and that's basically propaganda. Yeah. So that was a home video. Yeah. It didn't have any purpose. So um, I, I, I found out the grandchild of the filmmaker 
who is also a journalist and he's 16 now. And um, and I asked him, so what was this footage for? Do you have any information? He's like, oh, uh, no, I don't think. I think my grandfather just made it like that for the teachers, for his hobby. Um, I tried to understand if there's some ideology behind it. Um, because you, you can read a lot into it, right? Yeah. <laughs> because there's also some directing. He also did some directing. Some little scenes are very clearly have a storytelling. So um, I was wondering, is it a critique? Is it a support? What is it? Uh, but, um, but this is all speculation, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you talked a bit about like how you got the idea to make this film. Uh, I want to, like, uh, actually the first time I was close to someone from Germany, this is all I wanted to ask, like, because I, I didn't have like that opportunity before. And the first thing I wanted to ask is I wanted to ask about his views on the Holocaust and how how it was taught in, in Germany. I don't remember exactly what uh, what was the answer that he gave me, but it didn't seem like something like convincing in any way. And this is a person that I respected and a person that I thought was really well educated. But it, I don't know, maybe I didn't inquire further, but. It seems that this is more prevailing than, than I thought initially, or perhaps that was also your, your journey. Yeah, I mean, I also try to, you know, when you have memories uh, of your time in school, they are, they are like a bit distorted, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's so much also about the, your social environment, the situation you were in, you're struggling with puberty. Um, so I, I thought I cannot create it from my memory. Uh, I can't, I really, what I remember is not telling. <laughs> so I really have to go back and observe it again yeah. in, from another perspective. But then um, when I was filming, I, I also found that there, uh, the experience of the children is actually what's the key. Uh, so there was also options to use a lot of, for example, um, of material from what was happening in Germany from 2015-2017, the big uh, migration that came into Germany. But as it was very limited, limitedly touching the, the everyday life of the children, I thought, oh, I don't want to bring something in which they, out of themselves, are not uh, confronted with because they are very rural. rural. Uh, it's a very rural community, for example. So um, I tried to not bring things from me as a 30-year-old or a 26-year-old when I started into the life of the 14-year-olds mm. because it's so <laughs> it's so dif different and I felt like it's a kind of polluting them. I don't I don't want to be the one who's educating them about what the Holocaust has to do with the um, migration movements that we uh, see in the world today. So I just wanted to stick to their subjective experience and. Um, and that is, I think, the soul of the story, like the, how the journey from these students that you found. Yeah, and I mean, it was not so easy to get access to the classroom because... Yeah, and I, I want to ask about that yeah. because like you are there in, when they're having like these discussions and they're pretty honest and pretty straightforward discussions that I, I was wondering, like, how was that process to, to have that like level of trust to be part of that? Yeah, so first of all getting access to the classroom, that the, was the first hurdle. And I asked many teachers, can I film in your class? And some of them told me, look Elena, uh, there is uh, a couple of students that have parents which have clear fascist ideas and this also trajects to the children and they have, they hold, they are basically little neo-Nazis, you know? Yeah. So if you film them now, and you, they change your, their minds at some point, 
then uh, you manifest them in this documentary as this little fascist. So um, it's a lot of responsibility <laughs> if you film them at that age. And uh, so they said, you cannot come, you cannot come, you cannot come. Until I found these two, two teachers who um, allowed me to film. But there, it was not so, so easy. And then, I mean, the chemistry and the dynamics in a room always change when there's a camera. Yeah. Like it is, it is false to pretend like that, as if there would be a world where the cameraman and the director are like neutral in the room. It doesn't exist. But because we were there so much <laughs> and for such a long time, the kids were, I mean, I had the impression that they were not censoring themselves, even though they were telling things which are, which are maybe, <laughs> you know, they're almost offensive, yeah. you know, or they are, they are really not fulfilling your, what you are hoping for. After having learned for four years about the Holocaust, you don't hope uh, that a girl is saying, well, I think my family would just go with, with the masses and because that's their character and I would go with them. Like, you would hope that they, they aspire to be a bit more of a hero, right? Um, and they are not. So, and they felt comfortable saying that. Um, but I was also, I, was, I remember that moment with the camera when I asked who would have um, tried to resist and almost nobody raises their hand. Yeah. And isn't that actually the goal of our education? That they can judge when a state is abusing their power and when they have to rebel? Yeah. But can we give that when we are actually in the, such a Prussian um, form of a classroom, you know, where, we, where obedience is being cherished? Yeah, and I think that you capture those moments like so, and that's what makes your film so powerful because they are, you're there in that moment and you're seeing without, you were there and maybe that changes the whole dynamic, but you were there a long time and it really didn't. Mm. Uh, that was really powerful. and. I was wondering how, not that you did it in the film, but more like on your your view, because I think one of your previous films also dealt with the genocide in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. How how do you compare like the way that each society deals with with this in, at different levels and in the education system, if it's possible? Mm -hmm. I mean, in Rwanda, there uh, in Germany, we have this law that you cannot um, like. Um, you cannot deny the Holocaust, for example. And in Rwanda, it's very similar. They have, uh, you can also not basically change the story. Uh, there is a very famous case where the BBC made um, a documentary about the Holocaust in Rwanda, about the um, genocide in Rwanda, and puts the image a bit different. They say maybe it was only 700,000 people that got killed, not over a million and maybe it was also a third um, of Tutsi and there was this revenge uh, genocide um, of the Tutsi against the Hutu in Congo and it was about that and um, we, we, we came to Rwanda f f to film afterwards and everybody told us don't say that you're from the UK uh, we were filming uh, from the UK at the point living in the UK because people are so angry that uh, they put this narrative of the Rwandan genocide in question and um, I mean it was also the research they did is also their questions about their technique they use so um, uh, a bit that there is this one truth and all facts are on the table and there's nothing else to discover that's a bit um, Kagame's uh, yeah. attitude and it's and I mean the punishment you you face is much bigger also it's much more recent um, the way people talk about it is very different. It's like there's 
before and after yeah. these hundred days of genocide. You know, there's um, and there's also a bit big silence around it, just like just like in Germany. Also, I mean, also in my family, for example, I, I know my grandfather was a, was a Nazi, but. I never met him, he died before I was born, so I only have these few stories that my father could tell me, and uh, he, it's like barely anything. So I, I just know that, I, uh, that my family was privileged because they were Nazis, you know? Because they could have a certain wealth that I profit from even today because they were collaborating. And I think this is something very important that a lot of um, yeah societies who have have a, who are like the the have this heritage they don't accept they pretend like their wealth comes from <laughs> from God like they worked harder no uh, because it was not taken away from them at this uh, in, in this interception in, in time. Yes, uh, this that you are saying is, is very true, and um, oof, I was like a bit speechless there. <laughs> no, uh, no, but it's also, I mean, that is a question of what is this guilt? What is the responsibility you hold? I mean, we cannot say just because a lot of time has passed, uh, nobody has, uh, holds responsibility anymore. In, as, our, as a society, we absolutely do. Maybe not guilt, but re responsibility, and if and and then we, we cannot continue being the uh, oppressors. But this time, not due to ideology and race and all these things, but due to our economic uh, power. Yes, yes. It's unacceptable, and then we cannot claim that we learned the lessons from the Holocaust when we keep doing that. Yeah, and this is also something that um, because, for example, talking about the Holocaust is really pervasive in a lot of. Think in culture. There's movies about it. There's there's books. There's everything. But somehow uh, it seems like very removed from our reality. Yeah. So even though like we know and we can see these movies, like we say like yeah, that was a different time. That was like something different. That's in the past. It's no longer here. And I think that that's an important role that your family and school must fulfill. Like not yeah. to make it like no, that's not the past. It is the past, but. There's yeah. a connection. But that's also why the sentence that I was uh, told in my first encounter with a Jewish person, this, this your grandparents killed my grandparents, it's, it's, uh, it brought it to the now. Uh, it affects me now. I'm suffering from it now. Like, uh, so when I'm still suffering from it now, there's also something on your end, right? So that, that's what it, it told me. And that's why it hit me so hard. Yeah. Um, I, and I think that this is a huge issue for Germans today. They don't have this encounter. They think it's long gone. And the fact that they're... And it's not just the old people who survived and maybe live off 300 euros in Israel now. I mean, there are also these people. But these family lines, this family trauma, um, but also just the, the ability to, for example, when you live in a society like the US or in Germany where what you inherit very, very much dictates how you can uh, live your life, if you are in depth forever or not, if you can be comparatively free or not. Um, so uh, that, 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 that depends on, on what, you, what your grandparents did and how they lived and what they experienced. So I, there is, I think there is an obligation for us to really share. And we cannot say, look, um, 
Greece. Hey, you have been asking for reparations for um, now 80 years, over and over again. We always said no, we always said no. And now we're saying, wow, it's so long ago. <laughs> you know? Does it, like, this, the, the right for reparation is still there. Only because we waited doesn't make it not happen. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this is very, uh, this idea that time washes away <laughs> everything if we just wait long enough. It's a very, it's a very German, very Swiss technique, no? Oh, I, don't, I don't think that it's exclusive to, the, uh, to these cultures, but uh, maybe even to human mm. nature. Um, but I am really, like, I really love the film, and I think that you have really done a good job about following the film because I don't think that the film, like, the film was done and that's it. Like, you move on. Like, you are also part of the conversation through the film. How has been that experience, like, following the the work and maybe talking to people and hearing reactions? Yeah, I mean, the, the film found a lot, of, a lot of resonance in the education sector, in the human rights sector, in, of course, also Jewish film festivals, um, but also in film festivals that are broad, like the Zurich Film Festival. Yeah. So um, I think it, the, the dialogues created by it are su super interesting. Um, so um, there is there was Human Rights Watch Film Festival where we debated and there was also a German Jewish um, person contributing for example and he said how German schools when his son being Jewish is attending school in Berlin and he's experiencing anti-semitic attacks like literally like also with fists you know um, that the the school was not able to deal with it they didn't know how to respond to it because there's they, they think it doesn't exist anymore. Yes. So they couldn't do, like, they could deal with, um, uh, with anti-Islamic um, activities and, uh, and all of this, but, be, uh, but real anti-Semitism, they didn't know what to do. <laughs> so um, I, 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 think, I think that this, uh, this discussion is not over and it would be so nice if, if we had gotten a bit further. And the schools are so important. Oh gosh, it's so crucial. It's so crucial. And that it's not the superficial, everybody is equal. But a deep understanding, we have to reach a deep understanding of what equality means. Yes. And I think that's the most important thing. You have to learn how to read, how to write, how to do a little bit of mathematics and understand the fundamental idea of human rights. Then, then you're set up well as a human being, as a young person. Well, I and, I, and I think that your work here, here is helping to move towards that direction, which is really good. <laughs> uh, well, I just also just want to... The film was great. I, I think that everyone should see it. And not just in schools. I think that it should be seen by everyone. And not just like Germans, by everyone to understand. I just want to thank you, but I also want to, before we say goodbye, I want to hear like what are your future projects that you're working on? So I have, um, so first of all, there are still such, so, so many things happening with this uh, documentary. Yeah, yeah. You're probably gonna uh, continue for yeah. years, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I, w I was really, I was thinking, I would love to meet an Israeli filmmaker who does the same film in Israel. Yeah. <laughs> that would be so nice. Yes. Um, I think the concept is very, very much applicable for other contexts. So I, 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 I hope uh, that I would love to follow up with that. You know, uh, this is because 
I'm very much of the opinion that you can make films on your doorstep. You don't have to cross the planet uh, with 8,000 kilometers in an airplane. The best films you can also do right in front of your door and look what's underneath the mats of your, your front door. And um, so I think that the collaboration with people who can look into their own souls of their nations would be something that I, I want to do in the future. Well, um, thank you, Lena. It has been a pleasure talking to you and watching your film. I look forward to watching more of your films. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was the Juan Alfa Rivas project. I hope you loved it.